0: On this week's episode of Inside Outside Innovation, we sit down with Mauro Porcini, PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer and author of the new book, The Human Side of Innovation. Mauro and I talk about the human aspects of innovation and the importance of love in the innovation process. Let's get started. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast to help new innovators navigate what's next. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat into what it takes to learn, grow, and thrive in today's world of accelerating change and uncertainty. Join us as we explore, engage, and experiment with the best and the brightest innovators, entrepreneurs, and pioneering businesses. It's time to get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ordinger, And as always, we have another amazing guest today. We have Mauro Porcini. He is PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer and author of the new book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure.
0: I am super excited to have you on the show. I'm a big fan of PepsiCo and your work prior at 3M. And you've got this new book out, and I wanted to have a conversation about some of the things that you've seen in this world of innovation.
1: How do you define innovation? That's a good question. Every time you touch the status quo, every time you take something, anything, it could be a product, it could be an experience, it could be an institution, anything in your life, and you try to change. And now this change could be directed in a positive way, it could go in a negative way, it could be a major change, disruptive, breakthrough, as we call those kind of changes in the innovation world. It could be very incremental, very minimal. But anything you do that changes the status quo is innovation by definition.
0: I like that definition because you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on the fact that innovation, they think it has to be the biggest change in the world. It's, I've got to come up with the next flying car. But you talk about in your book, innovation is not just about that. It's about incremental improvements. It's just creating value in change.
1: This point we are both making right now, I think is extremely important because often people out there media, opinion leaders are looking at companies investing in innovation. And if they don't produce the next iPhone, they're like, well, they're failing. They're not really extracting the value that they should from that innovation team, that design team, whatever is the form and shape of that innovation organization. And instead, in many situations, that innovation is more In the genetic code of the company is happening in so many different ways, in the way you serve a customer, in the way you build experiences, in the way you promote your brands or you build new ones. Or eventually also in some small incremental products that make your portfolio more meaningful, more relevant, or financially more interesting for you and your shareholders or more strategic for your company. So it's very, very important to make this point. I read a few articles recently that were attacking and challenging companies that were not producing the next iPhone after these loud investments in the innovation machine. And the reality, many of those companies actually are different companies today than what they were in the past, thanks to that innovation culture that they built.
0: Absolutely. I heard you talk about design and, and that great design comes from this earnest desire to make other people happy. Can you expand yeah. on that a little bit?
1: That's how everything started thousands of years ago when the first act of innovation or design, because for me are exactly the same thing, happened. When the prehistoric man or woman, who knows if it was a man or it was a woman, for the first time took something that was available in nature, a stone, and modified that to give it a different destination of use to use the stone as a more effective hunting tool or a tool to prepare the food or later on to decorate your body or later on to celebrate your gods. By the way, I just mentioned three different dimensions of the Maslow Pyramid. You know, the yeah. bottom of the pyramid that is about survival and safety and is your physiological needs. The center is about self-expression and the connection with others. And then the top that is about something that Transcend yourself, is bigger yeah. than you. And so already those utensils made out of stones were serving specific needs. They were all about fulfilling, I mean, reaching, reaching your happiness. Because the maslow Pyramid, at the end of the day, the needs pyramid is all about reaching what we call today happiness if you work in all these dimensions. So already back then, innovation or design was an act of love. This is how I start also the book. Innovation is an act of love. An act of love towards yourself if you are creating this for yourself. But obviously, already back then, we were organizing little communities. We have people around us. We wouldn't have the concept of family yet. But you were creating these products also for the people around you. It was an act of love for them as well. And then you started to create more and more products by yourself. At a certain point, there were so many products that you needed help. You needed to start delegating the creation of those products to other people. And then over the hundreds of years and thousands of years, we started to organize ourselves in different kinds of communities. We invented the idea of work, we invented companies, then later on, brands. And so what happened when that started to happen is that essentially you start to put scale, literally mm. scale, between you, innovator, and the people that you love and that you are serving. The scale placed the distance between the two of you and the love started to get lost in translation, in the scale. And instead of love, you started to change love with profit and financial revenues and other things. And so in the name of profit, eventually you could create products that eventually were not ideal for the people you wanted to serve, but products that eventually you could extract as much financial value as possible out of. And so this is, what has been happening for hundreds of years more recently, that we are surrounded by so many mediocre products and services and brands and experiences because they were created in the name of profit instead of the name of love. What is changing today is that we live in a world where if you don't create the ideal, extraordinary, excellent solution for people's needs and wants, the solution could be, once again, a product, a service, a brand, or an experience. Somebody else will do it on your behalf. Why this was not happening 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Well, simply because if you were a big company, you could protect your product with big barrier to entry, made of scale of production, of distribution, and communication. Today, instead, anybody out there can come up with an idea, get easy access to funding through kickstarter.com or the proliferation of investment funds that are hunting for the next startup. The cost of manufacturing is going down, driven by new technologies and globalization. You can go straight to your end users through the digital platforms to sell them stuff through the e-commerce channels and to promote your products through social media. In these areas, these companies, the big ones, were building their barriers to entry. It was impossible for the men and women in the street to go compete with them. Today they can, and therefore the big and the small, they are left with just one possible solution. They need to really focus on people and really create something extraordinary for them. You may have the best product, the best brand, but very bad service. Your competitor will create the best product, the best brand, and eventually something with a better service. Or you may have all of them, but your product is not sustainable enough or is not healthy enough. That's exactly where competition will come. Thank God. We live in a world where the big and the small need to do just one thing, to create excellence for people. There is no space for mediocrity anymore. You cannot protect the mediocrity with your old barriers to entry anymore.
0: I love that concept. And coming back to the idea of innovation as love. If you think about one of the best acts of love is solving a problem for somebody. And at the end of the day, that's what innovation is. It's finding a problem and solving that problem for yourself or whoever's having that
1: problem. And going maybe a little bit further, you know. Many years ago, around 18 years ago, I was working at 3M and 3M named that year the year of customer satisfaction. The idea was let's focus on the customer, let's really celebrate and please the customer this year more than ever. So I was thinking about customer satisfaction and the etymology of the word satisfaction and the meaning of the word. And at a certain point, I realized that as a designer, as an innovator, I didn't care at all about satisfying the customer. I really didn't care at all about satisfying the customers. I wanted to love the customer. What is the big difference between satisfaction and love? Satisfaction is all about identifying a need and fulfilling the specific need. But if you love somebody, it could be your children, it could be your wife or husband or your parents or your friends, you try to do more. You try to do the magic, the unexpected, to go above and beyond, to really surprise them. And this is what the innovators the real innovators do. They want to surprise, they want to do the magic. And you know that to surprise and do the magic, you need an extra effort. You need to really change things. You need, need to do things that people do not expect. Not just the people you serve, but unfortunately, and this is the difficulty of doing innovation, also the people surrounding it, Your boss, yeah. your investors, your colleagues, There is a subtle difference between satisfaction and love, and I think love is really the the word that synthesizes real innovation.
0: And that's a great segue, because you talk about in the book how you have to go after and find these, what you define as unicorn employees, the employees that possess a lot of these key talents that you're talking about. Can you expand on what a unicorn employee is and why it's so important to have them in your innovation space?
1: Well, the first definition that is also the subtitle of the book is there are people in love with people. So until now, we talked about how important it is to refocus everything on people. That's the second people in the sentence. We briefly talk about love, that synthesizes essentially everything. The first people, I started to focus on the first people of the sentence that are the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the leaders of the world, the designers, Many years ago, for a very practical reason, you know, everything is in the book comes from the practical needs that I faced in my professional journey. Who was this need? Well, I was building design teams in 3M and I was hiring people and I had a series of technical skills. They needed to be the best possible designers. They also needed to be business savvy. They needed to have also, you know, a series of characteristics that were very clear to me. And then I was giving more or less an idea of the soft skills that these people needed to have, And very soon I realized that it was so difficult to find the kind of talents that I wanted. They had all the technical skills, they had the business skills, but they were missing. Something was important to move projects forward. Something else happened in parallel. I was there to introduce design thinking and design-driven innovation, or as we call that kind of innovation, human-centered innovation in 3M, and I was studying every other company, what they were doing, how they were applying innovation, big companies, small companies, and one of the trendy words of that time was design thinking, and of course, as a designer, I would introduce that idea inside the company, and I started to introduce the tools, the processes, the ways of working on design thinking. This is what you were reading in books, listening, uh, hearing in conferences, and what they're The consultants out there were selling to these companies. And so here I am. I started to run dozens and then hundreds of projects with this methodology. And some of them were succeeding. And some of them were miserably failing. And then you start to look at them. You start to analyze them. And then at the beginning, I was thinking, okay, maybe the process is not the right one. I need to tweak it and evolve it. And I need to change the way of working and some of the tools. And you do all of this and still some succeed and some do not and at that point you try to find what is the root cause of this what are the common themes and you arrive to one conclusion that is pretty obvious if you say it but the reality in the companies people don't talk enough about this when they talk about innovation the difference was made by the people driving the projects and there were people with certain kind of characteristics and people with others mindset Ability to observe reality and take certain kind of decisions, extract certain kind of insights and learnings, courage to drive things forward, to face roadblocks, uh, ability to take orders with you. I mean, there are a series of skills that back then, when I was hunting for all these people to join my team, CenturyM, I listed, in, literally in a list for my HR department, because I needed these people to have this kind of characteristics. Then the list became a paper for the Design Management Institute review. It became something that I would share in conferences and it became something very public for a simple reason because I wanted everybody out there that was interested to join my teams to know what kind of people I was looking for. And so in the past 17 years, I've been tweaking and evolving the list and two thirds of this book is about the characteristics and the way these unicorns think and behave. And some of them, are more obvious than others, like the ability to dream and think big when you talk about leaders and innovation, obviously you need to think big It's not that easy though you know we think big and we dream when we are children, and then society tries to convince us that is not okay that that's a childish kind of activity because society wants to normalize people they don't want people to dream too much because people need to be efficient and be stable, you know. within the society that we have today. Uh, Instead, we need to find ways to protect those dreams. And we need to understand that when we dream, we will face people that will push back on us. They, They will stop us from dreaming because that's what they believe in. You shouldn't dream. You need to be practical. You need to be pragmatic. The problem is that then even if you succeed in dreaming, that's not enough. There are many people that dream that are great visionaries, but are unable to make things happen. They stay up there in the dimension of dreaming. That is also a very comfortable dimension because to make things happen is tough. So, (laughs) you know, the balance between dreaming and, and execution is very important. Now, this is something that you hear about when you talk about innovation, you talk about leadership, you talk about design, but there are other characteristics that are less obvious. For instance kindness, optimism, curiosity. How many times you heard a CEO or a business leader and an hiring manager asking, is this person a kind person or is this person curious or optimistic? And, and there are many others. Again, there are 24 traits of these innovators. And in my, again, journey, I found that these characteristics are what made the difference in my teams. At the beginning, even before I started to create this list, they were kind of intuitive. People love to be surrounded by people that are similar to them. So I grew up in this family of kind people and optimistic people. I mean, it was just the way we were. (laughs) I wish all the Italians were like this. Actually in Italy, we have the opposite. Yeah, kind maybe, I don't know. But optimism (laughs) is the opposite. I think the problem of Italy today is that we are not optimistic at all today, unfortunately. (laughs) At a certain point, I realized with full awareness the power of something like this. For instance, curiosity is what drives you to talk with others, to get out of your comfort zone and embrace people that think differently than you. Curious people usually love diversity because they see in diversity, diversity of thinking and background, the precious gift of knowledge. They know that people that are different than them have something to offer to them and they can learn from. And it doesn't mean that the other point of view is better than yours. It means that through dialogue and therefore respect to other characteristics of the unicorns, ability to create a dialogue and respect, uh, through dialogue and respect, you can build a bridge with this other perspective and your perspective, perspective number one, combined with perspective number two of the other person, create a third original perspective that is the innovative perspective. It is what drives innovation. Curiosity makes you read books and travel from one place to the other without just stopping at the meeting room where you're going because of the business commitment that you have, but going out in the city and getting lost in the city and observe people and falling in love with you know the way they talk, they behave, they dress. They eat. They drink. They read. Anything they do, curiosity makes you grow every single day. <laughs>
0: so I'm curious to know. So you talk about these particular traits and that. Do you think they can be trained and taught to folks that are already on your team, or is this something you have to go out and hire for? And is it, is it in fact a unicorn from the standpoint of it's a mythical creature that doesn't always exist and is hard to come by?
1: Yeah, exactly. First of all, as you mentioned, it, the unicorn doesn't exist. The person that Embody to the extreme, the 24 skills of the unicorn doesn't exist. And this is what the unicorn is about. Plato will place the unicorn in the world of ideas up there. The unicorn is an idea you want to tend to for the rest of your life. You want to keep seeing your life as a never ending opportunity. It will end with your death eventually, depending on what you believe in. A never ending opportunity to keep learning, and so that's what the unicorn is about. And therefore, it's implicit in the very idea of the unicorn that you need to learn, that you can grow, you can improve, you can become a better unicorn than you were when you were born. So I think there are two dimensions to the idea of the unicorn. On one side, there are talents you're born with, like if you play soccer, and you are Maradona, or tennis, Serena Williams, or you run, and Usain Bolt, those are people who are born with those talents. But, they need to train. Also, Maradona, Serena Williams, Usain Bolt, need to train that talent. With multiple goals. At the beginning, even just building awareness. Realizing that I am Maradona. You know how many amazing, potential baseball players, tennis players, are out there, and they are maybe employees in a company or doing other things because they never became aware of an amazing talent because they never happened to play baseball, for instance. They just, you know, they didn't do sport and they ended up, or they were swimming. And so the first role of education is build awareness about specific characteristics. And again, now we're talking about sport, but understanding the power of curiosity, understanding the power of optimism, the power of, humbleness you know a series of traits that can make the difference in your innovation journey the the second goal is that once you're aware you want to practice so that you can take it to the next level the third one is that you wanna when you arrive to a certain level you know a professional kind of level and you think that you're done because you're there you're up there and you've been successful you did amazing innovation projects you are maradona somebody stop learning somebody stop growing. And this is a big mistake driven by the opposite of one of the characteristics of the unicorn, that is arrogance. And the characteristic is that humbleness combined with confidence. So short answer, partially is natural talent, partially is training. You may be born with less of a natural talent as a unicorn than somebody else, but you may become a better unicorn than a natural talent if you practice and if you get that kind of education.
0: You brought up the fact that you've got to be a natural learner and, and continually prime that pump. How do you stay fresh and current and connected to new ideas in that?
1: Look, I practice that idea of curiosity I was describing also earlier, but while in the past was kind of random, like I was just curious by nature, but you know it was very inefficient. Sometimes I was more curious, sometimes I was less. Today, I force myself to be extra alert. And really, you know, for instance, you may already understand from this conversation between the two of us that I love a lot to talk. And you put <laughs> me in a room, we start to talk, and I, I start. And then I learned over the years, when you are in the room and you meet people, people you know, but especially people you don't know, that if I was talking too much, I was wasting the opportunity to learn from others. So one of the things I learned to do is to stop. And listen more. Listen is so, so important. And also not doing that just in a casual occasion, but also during a business meeting, during a design or innovation meeting. And this is so important because often people, for lack of confidence, are there in those rooms, filling the gap of their of the silence with words to justify their presence there, to build their credibility, even if what they're saying is not really meaningful to the conversation. It's not really adding value. There are so many of these people. And today I'm almost bothered by that because mm-hmm. I feel it in my skin like a waste of time a lack of efficiency in that kind of conversation. I think we should talk when we have value to bring to the conversation and we shouldn't when we don't. By the way, this value doesn't need to be just intellectual value. Maybe there is a moment that we need a joke. Or some irony, you know, to create a different vibe in the conversation. So I'm talking about that. But this is something extremely important, I think. And we need to always keep in mind. And then finally, a little trick that, again, happened very spontaneously for me. I am very, very active in social media, especially in Instagram, in LinkedIn. And I post every day in Instagram especially. And so posting every day, you always want to have interesting content to post and so this force you to walk the streets of life and be curious and see people around you and always hunting for an interesting thing that happened so that you can snap that picture that could become content and it's not just the picture but it's the story behind that right. picture so you need to observe you need to understand what's going on and then you need to give an angle a perspective that is your unique That helps so much, being alert and looking around and always observe what's going on around
0: you. What it also allows you to do is to make mistakes. Like you can try things and you get better as you try things. I I imagine the first time you posted a picture of your shoes uh, was uh, maybe not the first best conversation piece, but I know that you do it on a regular basis. And having the ability to learn and grow and change as you experience and do things. That's probably important as well. Yeah, you
1: you say two things that I think are very important here. One is consistency. You may do things that at the beginning look weird, but if you do it consistency, because in a consistent way, then it becomes part of your brand. Or you may do things that people perceive as not authentic because they're like, ah, that's not really him, you know, or her in, in your social media or at work in, you know, in what you do every day in your company so at the beginning there will be this uncomfortable situation people won't know you know why you're doing certain things but if you keep doing that sooner or later they will understand that you really believe in what you're doing so consistency is very powerful but it requires a little bit of courage and getting out of your comfort zone at the beginning when you disrupt you do things differently
0: So obviously you work at a company like PepsiCo that's always doing some amazing things out there in the consumer's world and headspace. What are some of the trends that you're seeing or that you're excited about?
1: Well, there are three with an overarching platform that could be codified as an additional fourth trend in our industry, but they're common also in many other industries. Sustainability, health and wellness, personalization. Enabled by technology, technology could attach itself to all of these dimensions and really change the game. Sometimes people ask me, "Well, you've been ten years at PepsiCo. You were ten years earlier in 3M. Where do you see yourself in the future?" The first part of the answer is that you never know, right? I was not planning to leave 3M, and then it happened. But I'm not planning to to leave PepsiCo anytime soon. And one of the reasons why Since 10 years, I'm doing exactly the same job, and I could keep doing the job eventually for 20 more years, is that it's exactly these four challenges that I just named. We are working in an industry that is in evolution, is changing, and companies like PepsiCo give people like me the platform to reach every day billions of people. Billions of people. So even the incremental changes that eventually the media don't notice because they're not the next iPhone could generate a positive impact, for instance, in sustainability, in health and wellness, that is exponentially bigger than anything a small company is can do and is doing today. The impact of what we're doing today with a variety of different activities that are human-centered, design-driven, is unbelievable. So it's so exciting to work on these four dimensions today in an industry like this, with a company that give you this kind of access and resources as well, obviously.
0: It's exciting times we're living in for sure. And I really do appreciate you coming on Inside Outside Innovation to kind of share your thoughts. I'm really excited about the book coming out. For folks who want to find out more about yourself or about the book, what's the best way to do that?
1: If you follow me on my Instagram, Mauro Porcini, and my LinkedIn, Mauro Porcini as well. I'm pretty active there. And then there is the possibility to eventually even to communicate directly. So probably are the best two platforms.
0: Well, Mauro, thank you again for coming on the program. Very excited to continue the conversation in the years to come and appreciate your
1: time. Thank you. Thank you, Brian.